In anxiety, what commonly happens is people uh, think about what's going to happen in the future and they're traumatized by their imagination of that. So I call that a flash forward. So it's the mm. same as a flashback, but it lives in the future. Interesting. Yeah, it's the content of that that's usually traumatizing for people with anxiety disorders where there is no traumatic cause for the anxiety. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Superwoman Wellness. I'm Dr. Taz. I've made it my mission throughout my career in integrative medicine to support women in restoring their health using a blend of Eastern medical wisdom with modern science. In this show, I will guide you through different practices to find your power type and fully embody the healthiest and most passionate version of you. I'm here for you and I can't wait to get started. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Superwoman Wellness, where we're determined to bring you back to your superpowered self. And we're about to jump in to a topic that many of you can probably relate to. It's all about anxiety. Anxiety is the number one mental health disorder and even more common among women than it is among men. That's why my next guest is here to help us all. You'll walk away with a few tips on how to stay calmer. Welcome to the show. Dr. Karen Schnack is a clinical psychologist trained at the University of Oxford. She's been working as a psychologist for more than 20 years now with people from all walks of life who have been struggling with complex psychological difficulties, often for many years. Over two years ago, she started sharing her expertise online on TikTok, then on Instagram, and her online presence has exploded. People have valuable resources to support their mental health. In her recently released book, 10 Times Calmer, her mission is to help those struggling with anxiety and all anxiety issues really have practical tools that they can use with actionable strategies for managing everyday stressors and overcoming anxiety issues. Welcome to the show, Dr. Karen. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to be here. And congratulations on your book. It looks like it just released a few weeks ago. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. It came out last week in the US. It's been uh, amazing. We've had it um, released in the UK um, last year. So yeah, it's been wonderful to be able to bring that to the US audience. I, you know, we need all the help we can get yeah. right now because we're yeah. in the middle of election season. So we yeah. won't go there. But, you know, anxiety is something that I think is a global problem. It's definitely a US problem. It is absolutely a female problem. So we really want your help in helping us, like, maybe put some of those tools that you're talking about into action. What are you seeing after 20 years of working with clients? You know, what are you seeing as maybe the undercurrent of the escalation of anxiety? What What is it due to? What are some of the common patterns that you're seeing over and over again? Um, yeah, I think we, you know, since the pandemic, there has been an increase in anxiety. So we see more people now with anxiety in clinic than uh, depression, certainly in our clinic. And I think, you know, during the pandemic, people were exposed to very real fears about their um, existence and about their safety. And, you know, coming out of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, you know, health anxiety increased for a lot of people, um, as well as generalized anxiety and uh, work uh, habits changed. You know, people found it more difficult to leave their home, social anxiety increased and just a generalized sense of worry. And on top of that, you know, uh, 
coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, we went straight into further world events where there's been global instability, economic instability, um, you know, lots going on in the world to be anxious about now in the current time. That is, you know, I can resonate with that so much. I think I meet people every day in practice who are really struggling with anxiety and it looks different, right? It looks different on different clients and different patients. And I've definitely seen that for sure. What are some of the most common signs and symptoms, maybe the not so obvious ones of anxiety that you've noticed as you've worked with uh, folks over the last 20 years? Yeah, so I uh, categorize them into kind of three different um, areas because uh, that's kind of what I see um, most of the time. And I say anxiety is either, or it might all be all three, it's either emotional physical and mental, or it's a combination of all three. And each of those can be subtle or obvious. So the emotional aspect would be just that sense of dread and feeling uncomfortable, off, just not feeling yourself, but not really knowing what's wrong or what's happening to you. And that's more a kind of difficult for people who are just go, go, go uh, and busy and just moving from one thing to the next. And this is general sense of unease. It's quite hard to stop and spend time regulating and recognizing what that emotion might be about. And the physical aspect is there's more than 200 physical symptoms of anxiety. Mm. The more, more unusual ones um, that I see, you know, there might be, you know, really bizarre symptoms like uh, a zaps in your head or vibrations in your legs. Um, the, the list is endless, but. Um, you know, anything that manifests physically, particularly during times of stress and anxiety that you haven't experienced before and increases during times of anxiety and stress. And then mentally, the third one is racing thoughts, intrusive thoughts, thoughts that are persistent and they trouble you, distress you, disturb you, and they don't go away. Um, I think in the general population, most of us experience upsetting thoughts from time to time, but they can be fleeting or passing mm -hmm. thoughts that will go, but it's when they become persistent and we become preoccupied with them or they demand us to do something. As, so I love the way you've broken it out into emotional, physical, and mental. And I see a lot of those in practice. It's funny, the zaps and the vibration, like this vibratory sensation. And then mm -hmm. some of the other ones that it's taken me a minute to understand because you always want to work through, you know, a differential is you know, ringing in the ears, you know, jaw clenching is another big one, chronic neck pain. Like these are some of the ones that, that I've seen too, which aren't as traditional as like the racing heart or the sweaty palms or some of those other, other ones that, that we know so well, you know, you differentiate anxiety first, there's mental, emotional, physical in terms of manifestation. And then you also differentiate between helpful and unhelpful anxiety. What's the difference between those? So, um, yeah, there is a difference because anxiety is supposed to be adaptive and helpful. We should be able to use anxiety to enhance our performance. You know, the whole point of anxiety is to get your nervous system alert and ready to deal with whatever it is that you need to deal with. Um, you know, if that's a job interview or being on time for an event or being prepared for things like that. So I would say that's kind of healthy anxiety, which is performance enhancing. So that kind of anxiety is what we want or anxiety that keeps us safe in situations where we need to be prepared or weigh things up. And that kind of healthy anxiety will 
normally settle once the situation has passed. Um, and, you know, I'm less concerned about that. Anxiety that is the opposite of that is performance reducing or performance debilitating. And that kind of anxiety is more persistent. It's difficult to control. And it doesn't matter whether there is a stressful situation or not. It can be excessive and persistent and it starts to interfere with your daily life. And that's when it potentially has become more of a serious problem. So I have a question just thinking about men and women and even across ages, children, you know, do different groups in your experience have more dominant patterns? Like do women have more emotional symptoms? Men have more physical symptoms. Have you noticed any patterns like that or not necessarily? Um, well, yeah, I think sometimes there is a pattern, but I, you know, um, relate more of that in women to hormonal changes. So, you know, there's definitely a distinct pattern of women experiencing more physical symptoms in perimenopause and during menopause that they have never had in their life before. So their physical manifestations of anxiety, so heart palpitations or, um, burning on the skin and then feeling anxious about those sensations, which then kickstarts the thought process of anxiety. What's wrong with me? What's happening to me? Feeling unsafe in their bodies, feeling uncomfortable in their bodies. Mm -hmm. And then that then perpetuates the cycle with one thing feeding the next. And, and before you know it, a cycle of anxiety can establish. So the kind of, you know, very uh, unusual experience of these physical sensations, most of the time I see in, in women uh, in perimenopause and and menopause, um, and they seem to come out of the blue for the first time. Um, men, um, you know, tend to report less in terms of the emotional symptoms of anxiety. It tends to be thoughts and physical sensations. Interesting. You know, so how do you identify, you know, first of all, do you have anxiety? What would you tell someone like they're listening to this and I'm like, well, I kind of have all of that. Am I anxious? You know, you know, how would someone identify that they're having unhelpful anxiety and what would they do about it? What should be their first steps, you know, as they're sort of entering acceptance that this might be happening with them? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, the most helpful of all uh, things for the listeners. Um, I, um, not to say anything else wasn't helpful, but I think this is uh, the go-to for people who are hungry for information that helps yeah. them help themselves. So, um, yeah, so I think identifying and accepting, you use the word accepting, accepting that that it's anxiety. Sometimes people don't know. And part of that acceptance might come through seeing your doctor who can confirm that, yes, this is an anxiety. So you don't need to worry about it potentially being a physical health issue. And I think acceptance of it being anxiety then frees you to be able to manage that as an anxiety problem instead of um, as something else which might then cause uh, worsening of your symptoms. Right. And beyond that, I think the you know helpful things, there's five helpful things. I think number one is understanding your triggers. And I think through mm. keeping a diary of your anxiety symptoms, when does it happen? Uh, what was happening beforehand? What was I thinking before this happened? That's a, a really important one. Because once you know your triggers and you know situations might be coming up in the future that could trigger you, you can prepare in advance for those triggers to minimize their impact. Number two is looking at what pattern of thoughts 
there might be a persistent pattern. Many people have uh, a what if kind of thought. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if I uh, faint? What if the plane crashes? What if? So there's always a predictive element. For some people, it might be a worst case scenario thinking. So just identifying what type of thoughts. And usually there is a signature thought pattern for most people. Uh, there's a, the same kind of tendency. So that's the second thing. And then once you know that, the third thing that is quite powerful is keeping a diary of what those thoughts were, what they were telling you was going to happen. And then just next to it, I say, just note what actually did happen, because that can really help you train your brain into seeing that what was perceived was not actually factual reality. And that helps your brain make a kind of natural adjustment in its own thinking, rather yeah. than you trying to force yourself to not think in an anxious way. So it's more of an experiential learning, if you like. And then number four, I think persistently working on calming your nervous system. I think that's good for all of us, even if we're not anxious and stressed. But, you know, it's things that people will have heard about, like breathing exercises, yeah. make, making sure your exhale is longer than your inhale, balances carbon dioxide in the blood and doing that a few times a day. Or, or just sitting and listening to the sounds around you can be a good and simple mindfulness exercise. But just doing things to nurture and look after your nervous system. And then number five, uh, planning for the future. Uh, you know, if you've got events that are coming up that are anxiety provoking, sometimes people ask me the day before, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, take a flight tomorrow and I've got this phobia that I've had for eight years. Don't leave things to the last minute. Make sure that you um, take the time to think through and address your anxiety if you want to, you know, deal with a difficult a situation that you might find difficult or challenging. I like those. Those are all very practical, useful things that we can all do anywhere. If anxiety, you're not still able to manage it with those tools, you know, where does somebody go for help? You know, where should they look first? People debate, do they go to a therapist? Do they go to a doctor? Like what's like a good first step for everybody? Well, I would say good first step. Um, you know, I'm in the UK and I think it's the same um, over there in the States that going to see your doctor, your GP, to confirm that that it is anxiety, not to self-diagnose that. So a doctor mm -hmm. that can confirm that, yes, your problem is anxiety and explore what the causes of it might be. And also what type of anxiety you have, because not all psychotherapy, a psychological intervention or therapies are equal and the evidence base for them isn't equal either. So mm -hmm. we know, for example, counseling or non-specific therapeutic input uh, the evidence for anxiety problems is actually quite poor. So um, if you then go to see somebody asking your doctor if, if they can refer somebody or your insurance company sometimes might have a list of reputable therapists. But generally speaking, I suggest to my patients, you need to ask questions like, you know, uh, how do you treat anxiety? How long will it take? What's your expertise in it? What approach do you normally use? How many people have you treated before? How does it work? I think a lot of people turn up to psychotherapy or therapy of, of any kind um, wanting to get from point A to point B and yeah. wanting to reduce their pain and suffering. And I think right. a lot of practitioners, they don't explain to patients, this is how it works. This is what we'll do. And this is you know where we hope to get to. There doesn't seem to be but if in any doubt if the person doesn't is not able to answer those questions or doesn't seem competent I wouldn't um you know advise uh it continuing because I see a lot of people that have had help that's you know sometimes three years or 15 years of psychotherapy and right. you know 
it's just not working, is it, if you've been in, in treatment that long? Um, clinical guidelines in the UK are between six sessions and up to 24 sessions. Um, you know, the kind of average being around, well, the average range 12 to 20 sessions for generalized anxiety, for example. But, you know, if we say it's 24 sessions, you shouldn't be in therapy for 15 years to, to deal with right. that. Right. And if therapy fails, and I'm curious in the UK, is the toolbox expanded to include things like CBT or hypnosis or any of those modalities or not so much? Yeah. And so, what's your opinion uh, of those too? Yeah. Well, CBT is a very evidence-based and that's actually the first type of therapy that's offered in the health service here, our NHS service, <clears throat> excuse me, offers CBT cognitive behavior therapy. And that's designed, the cognitive bit is your thoughts and the B bit is your behavior. So it's designed to help you change your behavior and there should be a resulting impact on your thoughts and feelings. So that is kind of first line therapy treatment in the UK. Aside from that, other things that are prescribed and one treatment that I really love and advocate and tell everybody to look into, especially if they've had a history of trauma or if they feel persistently traumatized by the content of their anxious thoughts is EMDR. And that mm. stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And now this is a very powerful treatment for people that have not responded to other forms of psychotherapy and other treatments. Uh, EMDR is something I know I get a lot of questions. Could you explain that a little bit to our listeners and our viewers? And I don't know if you can demonstrate it or not too, but that's something I get a lot of questions about. And I feel like there's a lot of confusion around it. Yeah, there is, a, there is um, a lot of confusion. And I recommend it a lot of the time to people because of how well it works. And so the idea is um, in EMDR that um, either it could be a past trauma that's caused your anxiety symptoms. And sometimes people say, well, I haven't had a trauma. So we say a past trauma creates flashbacks. You've heard the word flashback in terms of PTSD, right? Definitely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we either have a flashback or um, in anxiety, what commonly happens is people uh, think about what's going to happen in the future and they're traumatized by their imagination of that. So I call that a flash forward. So it's the mm. same as a flashback, but it lives in the future. And it's the content. Yeah, it's the content of that that's usually traumatizing for people with anxiety disorders where there is no traumatic cause for the anxiety. So how EMDR works is we um, look for, you know, there'd be an assessment of the person's distress. We always start with where you are currently, what's dis distressing and disturbing to you. So if, if it's anxiety, we look at, you know, what kinds of memories or images are associated with either flashbacks or flash forwards. And then based on those mm -hmm. memories and images, we will use rapid eye movements to process the distress contained in them. So rapid eye movement helps turn on your brain's processing computer. So the idea is that when you are overwhelmed, your brain doesn't process information in the same way. So these traumatic memories, flashbacks or flash forwards, get stuck in inaccessible memory networks. So with EMDR, we can process these memories. And when they're processed, they get, they get filed away. So once they're filed away and removed from these inaccessible memory networks, they, the distress and the heat in them has gone 
So that's how it kind of works. It's, it sounds quite bizarre and quite unusual, but anybody wanting to learn more, there's EMDRIA, which is the International Association for EMDR. Mm. It has excellent resources and information for global um, EMDR practice. But that's that's basically how it works. And the effects of it in my own clinical practice and the you know my colleagues it's actually you know very pro- it's profound i say anybody wow. who's yeah it's really i'm blown away uh by how much it helps um people um yeah and this is something, you know, it's a go- yeah sorry this, sorry to interrupt is this something you could teach yourself to do on your own or you you need a emdr practitioner to sit with no it's not something that you could do by yourself um i have seen videos online of people saying you know do emdr with me i would right. advise again against that because um it is quite a complex treatment and you know in the in most good training providers of emdr that are accredited would require you to first of all have a pre-existing profession in mental health and then mm-hmm. you would do that as a secondary training which might take a year or two years but um you know, there's some kind of online courses where somebody can do it in a day. That's not really proper EMDR. And sometimes that can be quite unhelpful. You just not go an unprofessional, but you can't do it yourself because, um, you know, there's the job of trying to find what the memories are, what cognitions are attached to those memories, what, how much distress they cause, where they mm-hmm. are physically located in the body. So it sounds uh, simple, but no, I think you see a lot of this butterfly tapping online. I think, um, uh, sometimes yes. or yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah but no there's no evidence that EMDR can be self-administered um, I wish there was but there's uh, there isn't um, but as an individual treatment it is gold standard which you know I think there's more than 30 randomized control trials it's, it outperforms many of the therapies um, and in wow. fact I think in some studies it outperforms CBT so there isn't anything better oh, wow. in terms of the evidence yeah that's amazing. Can it be used in children? We have an escalating adolescent mental health crisis too. Can it be used in our teenagers and children or not really? Yes, it can be used in children. The The practitioner must be child trained as well because it's, it's a different protocol for children. So um, yes, but definitely it can be used in children and it's very effective. And sometimes the experience that children have had of their distress, we say, if we say a point in time six months ago to now, we say that memory chain is shorter. So the processing is easier or quicker, or it might be, um, your, it's easy for your brain to handle. You know, somebody, yeah. I see patients that might be say 50 and they've had their anxiety problems for 20 years. And we know, you know, in that memory network, there might be lots of kind of memories and images to process but you know we start with whatever the worst thing is and sometimes that takes the other things with it but with children yeah um it is possible and very effective because you know obviously with their age memory chains are shorter interesting fascinating well your book is 10 times calmer eat anxiety and change your life what else are you tackling in the book what can readers find in the book if they go out and grab it today yeah, so the book is very practical. Um, and someone said to me, um, actually, um, someone from the state said, you've democratized anxiety treatment, I which it. I really, <laughs> uh, I love it. I, yeah, I wanted to write a whole, it's, a, it's basically a structured program of treatment for your anxiety problem. And the book targets a health anxiety, generalized anxiety, social anxiety, and panic disorder. So if you have one of those four problems and you are looking for an evidence-based approach to 
dealing with those problems in a very practical way, then this is the book for you. It's a real how-to and what-to-do uh, book. Um, you know, the chapter four is on dealing with anxious thoughts. I think in that chapter alone, there's 28 different strategies for dealing with your anxious thoughts. Mm. And uh, there's nine other chapters with... So it's a real practical book. It's not... Um, uh, uh, it's not exploratory, uh, you know, there's some theory and explanation, but most of it is based on what patients ask me in clinic, what shall I do to get from A to B? So this is a kind of, you know, the, the whole arc of the book, the promise of the book is to help you overcome your anxiety problem. And um, yeah. And what's the journey for somebody with anxiety? I would love to leave them with, you know, what you've seen play out as they work on these tools and as they, you know, what's the rhythm and the frequency? Is this something people need to be doing daily or monthly? And what can they kind of expect on the other side of it? Yeah, I think if someone is struggling a great deal, then it might be something that they need to spend more time working on and more frequently. Um, if I see somebody who is very stressed, I might prescribe them to do some of the relaxation exercises five or six times a day. If somebody else has anxiety specific to being triggered by hearing bad news, they might just use those techniques um, on those days or for those moments. So it's different for everybody. But generally speaking, the more distressed you are, the more time you need to assign to working mm. on yourself uh, to improve things. And then as things get better, you can ease off using techniques and uh, use them again if you need to. Um, and, you know, there is a life after anxiety. People can and do get better. I wouldn't be doing my job if uh, there was never any change. It would be uh, uh, frustrating and I wouldn't be smiling right now. Um, you know, the greatest thing to witness is people make these transformations and get back to normal. Um, and in fact, I, I saw a patient today who, who came in and, and said to me, I, I said, how are you today? I'm back to normal. That's where that, those were their words. Yeah. I'm back to I'm back to who I was. I'm back to normal. And unbelievably, um, they can't believe that they could get back to normal because, you know, part of the fear with anxiety is that it will never stop. But right. there is a normal, you can get back to, you know, the book really is about helping you get back to who you were before this started. Definitely. And I think I've been, as I'm sure you have, sort of in the front seat of, you know, of how crippling it can be and how it can change your life, right? If if yeah. if you're not getting that proactive approach, it'll change who, what job you take, what career you choose, who you choose to be in a relationship with, where you live. So many different decisions are sort of wrapped up in this ultimate feeling. So I love that you've taken your time and energy to dump all your thoughts into this great book. Where can people find the book and where can they connect with you? Uh, so the book's available, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, um, awesome. all books, yeah, all bookstores. And I am at Dr. Kieran, uh, K-I-R-R-E-N on Instagram and TikTok. Fantastic. Well, thank you for taking time out today. I appreciate it. And for everybody else watching and listening to this episode of Superwoman Wellness, remember to rate and review it and share it with your friends. If you share your review with me, just email me, hello at drtaz.com. I'll send you a free bottle of booze and we'll see you next time.